Good afternoon. You are listening to WMUA 91.1 in Amherst. Welcome to Undercurrents. My name is Jenny. I'll be with you for the next half hour, along with my co-host, Anne. Our guests in our virtual studio today are Amar Ahmad and Brian Garvey, who are both working with the Massachusetts Peace Action Network, Mass Peace Action Group. And I'd like, thank, I'd like to thank you for joining us on Undercurrents today. Well, thanks for having us. Uh, we really appreciate the time. Okay, well, we're looking forward to hearing about um, what the Mass Peace Action does. So why don't you start, in fact, by telling us what is this organization? You know, what kind of things does it focus on? Well, uh, Massachusetts Peace Action is uh, dedicating to, dedicated to, to fighting um, militarism, which is uh, one of the great evils uh, in our society uh, as, as we see it. Um, so this, this covers a, a vast uh, spectrum uh, of work, uh, but, but Peace Action actually goes all the way back to the 1950s, to 1957. Uh, it started as an organization uh, dedicated to the abolition of nuclear weapons. Uh, and this is still a very important uh, aspect of our work. Uh, but since then, uh, we have expanded um, to opposing our ongoing uh, wars in the Middle East, uh, also opposing intervention, uh, including economic sanctions in Latin America. Uh, we also promote peace uh, on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, we also make the connections between climate change and environmentalism and, and uh, uh, our military interventions uh, and war. And, and the same goes with uh, racial justice as well. Uh, we see peace as deeply connected uh, with issues of racial justice. Uh, I'm sure Amar uh, has some things that he'd like to add as well. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. And uh, thank you so much, uh, Undercurrents Radio, for having us uh, to speak about this. Um, yeah, I'll just add that uh, uh, Brian mentioned racial justice. Uh, I'm not sure if he also mentioned climate. That's another issue we work on uh, that, um, you know, the, the need for countries across the world to come together to fight climate change or global warming. And also now, uh, this year, we've seen also pandemic disease. So, uh, one of our focuses is diplomacy, working with other nations and not fighting them in wars. And then the last thing I'll just add is that uh, uh, Mass Peace Action, as the name implies, we're the Massachusetts chapter of a national organization called Peace Action, which has chapters throughout the country. And the last thing that I'll add to that, and this um, this this is is something that's present in all aspects of our of our work. Uh, is opposing uh, the huge bloated military budget. Uh, we, we see that as, as connecting uh, our issue uh, to pretty much everything uh, because now we see that the military budget is some $740 billion. That's well over 50% of the federal uh, discretionary budget. Uh, and by pouring so much money into the war machine, uh, there are a lot of opportunity costs that are associated with that. Um, budgets are moral documents, as we all know. Uh, and if you're spending more than half uh, of every federal dollar uh, on the Pentagon, uh, there's a lot that gets neglected. 
Um, there's a lot of human needs in this country that are going unmet uh, because of the amount of money that we put into the military every year. So maybe this question is a little bit off our line of development, but I'm quite curious. I mean, of course, that's a very important connection. And, you know, the, the bottom line kind of says it all, as you pointed out. When you're working, coalitioning with or trying to co-organize with um, groups that say focus on poverty or healthcare in the U.S. or racism in the U.S., um, do you find that's a useful way to to co connect? You know, like, or do you get looked at as oh, militarism? That's in, that's some other country. Why should I care about what's going on in some other country when? My kids don't even have enough to eat. Well, I, I, I would say definitely uh, uh, through our, our efforts to, to build coalitions with, uh, with other progressive groups. Uh, one is the Poor People's Campaign. Um, the, the economic uh, argument is, is always uh, a very important part of, of that uh, because you're, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, it's a danger uh, to be siloed to think that all of these different issues are separate. Uh, and it, if you get caught in that trap, uh, then you have a lot less influence. Uh, so it has been a strategy of Massachusetts uh, peace action uh, to form coalitions as much as possible uh, to support other progressive causes uh, and to receive support uh, at the same time. Um, we believe that that's the only way to make effective change is through broad solidarity uh, on all of these issues, of which uh, peace is one. Am I? Yes, and uh, so uh, Ma Mass Peace Action, one of the campaigns we, we've been working on this year in particular is called uh, Fund Healthcare Not Warfare. We're trying to highlight the uh, military budget that Brian mentioned, $740 billion a year, which usually increases year after year um, with bipartisan support. And we're trying to, uh, we, we created a campaign to highlight that uh, big bloated military budget and to say that we need to uh, reinvest that money into healthcare. We, we see uh, how devastating the pandemic has been. So we, we should have better investments in healthcare and, and in our uh, public health infrastructure. So to do, to do that project, yes, we, we had to work in coalition with um, healthcare groups, public health groups, um, some, some unions, uh, the Poor People's Campaign, as Brian mentioned, and uh, the, the economic argument is, is very powerful, of course. Uh, uh, budgets uh, uh, reflect our values. And uh, why are we valuing uh, weapons and bombs and warfare more than we're valuing the health of our, of our people? But uh, uh, you raise an interesting issue, um, Jean. Uh, I was speaking uh, yesterday with someone from New Hampshire Peace Action, and he was talking about how uh, the... Uh, it's hard to get other people in, in, in or other organizations in the progressive left to 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 sign on to cutting the military budget because uh, you know this large military budget a lot of it gets subcontracted to companies such as Raytheon and these companies provide a lot of jobs to people and and uh, jobs and income is something we we think everybody should have a job it gives people dignity and and income. So uh, that brings us to a deeper uh, societal question about how do we uh, 
create a society that employs people and gives them dignity and work, but does so without needing to produce uh, bombs and F-35s and nuclear weapons, which we don't need anyways, and we shouldn't be using anyways. So, uh, you know, the people have thrown out ideas like there that companies like Raytheon, they should use their infrastructure and resources to make ventilators or PPE and things like that. But, but, um, but yeah, sometimes uh, the economic argument does work with many groups, and, but with other groups, it's a challenge because of uh, people have jobs and union contracts and things like that. Yeah, that's a really excellent, excellent point. And it's like even, you know, like Obama supported the coal industry in Illinois because you're from Illinois, you have to support the coal industry. Right, so showing my age, I was a young kid during the Vietnam War and every night in the news, Walter Cronkite would um, give the body count. And you mentioned when we we're doing the introduction, um, a number of places around the globe where US, the US is involved in a military way. So, on the other hand, you don't see this on the front page, or I don't know how many pages you have to go into a newspaper really to find the fact of, of the US military involvement. Do you wanna um, recap a little bit the extent of the US military involvement abroad and also why you feel that that's dropped out of the news? So that's two different questions. Um, Brian? Yeah, I, I will say that uh, our our presence, our military presence, the world over, it, it really, uh, it can't be overstated. Um, uh, we have over 800 uh, foreign military bases. Uh, and just by comparison, uh, the, the next country, uh, which I believe is Russia and France are, are tied, they have 11. Uh, foreign military bases. So that really lets you know the scope of the problem. Uh, there are U.S. military uh, forces uh, to some level present in upwards of 170 countries uh, across the world. Uh, and, and that requires massive investment uh, to keep it going. Uh, and it's not just the investment of money, which is incredibly sizable, as we already mentioned, uh, but there's a great impact on our planet for that as well, because when you have forces all over the world, uh, you need to keep them supplied, you need to keep them fed, you need to transport personnel uh, back to the United States. Uh, and, and that is one of the reasons why the United States military is by far the leading institution when it comes to carbon emissions. Um, so that just shows some of the scope of the problem. I'll go, yeah, go ahead. Say, are you serious? So the US military in terms of, you know, versus automobiles, homes, industry. So can you just repeat that? Sure, the United States military is the leading institution when it comes uh, to climate change, when it comes to carbon emissions uh, contributing to the problem uh, of climate change. And, and we've heard uh, over the past few years that it's been the goal uh, of some to sort of green the US military. And uh, we, we actually don't believe that that's possible. It's, it's, not, it's not possible to have a presence in so many countries across the world 
so many foreign military bases uh, without um, emitting so much carbon into the atmosphere. Uh, I, I personally believe that the only way to green the US military is to end our foreign wars and close so many of those uh, foreign military bases. It's the only way to do it. Omar? Yeah, no, thanks, Brian, for bringing up that fact about the US military uh, being the leading institution in terms of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, uh, Gene, to get back to your original question, um, uh, we, we've, uh, we, we've externalized the costs of war, um, especially since uh, Obama was president. Uh, the, the state of warfare has changed a little bit. Uh, we see much more drone warfare and special forces warfare. Uh, and of course, there's no draft anymore like, like there used to be. So, so, so largely the, the cost of warfare has been externalized uh, from the American public. And, um, you know, I, I question uh, how many of us are aware of the extent of uh, U.S. militarism throughout the world in terms of, uh, as Brian mentioned, our extremely large number of bases our tremendous investment of our half of our tax dollars going to the Pentagon, um, while we don't even have full healthcare coverage during a pandemic, as many other countries do. Um, so, so the cost of warfare has been externalized, but it's it's no less destructive across the world. Um, you know, people people are dying. Where where fueling all of this with, with our tax money. Um, it's bipartisan with Democrats and Republicans. So it's a very, uh, the, the so-called military industrial complex or the congressional military industrial complex, it's very entrenched and it's very deep. And, uh, um, you know, I hope that some of these new uh, incoming congressmen men and women, uh, such as AOC, Ilhan Omar, and now in 2020, Jamal Bowman, Cori Bush, my hope is that they will be a different voice in Congress to uh, compared to those who, who have supported the military industrial complex. So you introduced my next question. We have all these bases, um, takes a lot of carbon to get supplies and so forth to them. Um, what are they doing? What is the US military doing? Are people just sitting there or is there actually warfare going on? Brian? Well, you, uh, you you wouldn't know it from from just looking at the at the front page of, of major newspapers, but the U.S. is involved uh, in in active uh, operations in seven countries uh, now: Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Yemen, Libya, uh, Somalia, Syria, uh, drone strikes in Pakistan. Uh, we've actually expanded operations uh, into Africa, in, including creating uh, a new command for that continent, uh, AFRICOM. Uh, and the, our drone wars, um, as, as Amar was, was saying earlier, um, we, we use these bases to have the ability uh, to intervene all over the world. Uh, and that has been uh, the strategy uh, of the US government, of the US military, uh, is that we need to be able to respond anywhere in the world. Uh, and, and that requires the massive infrastructure, uh, the presence uh, of these many bases. Uh, and 
the destruction that that follows uh, uh, from it. Um, uh, the United States uh, government has decided that uh, we need to maintain uh, our lone superpower status uh, in the world. And that accounts for the, the presence uh, all over the planet of the US military. So I see that we have about 13 minutes left. So why don't we focus in on a particular example? Well, it's more than an example. Um, it's a horror story. And I would like to ask you if you can tell us a little bit about the, the history of the US um, involvement, the US war in Afghanistan and um, what the situation is today. Okay, I can I can pick that one up, um, and it's it's a very important case uh, for us to to look at because Afghanistan, our involvement is now America's uh, longest war. Uh, over nineteen years, we have been involved uh, in that country, and just to really drive the point home, uh, there was a recent article in Stars and Stripes, which is the military's own newspaper, that talked about. Uh, fathers and mothers who had served in Afghanistan are now uh, watching their children uh, deploy uh, to Afghanistan. So the war has been going on so long that there are actually uh, soldiers in Afghanistan uh, that were not born when that conflict uh, began. Obviously, uh, uh, the U.S. military uh, deployed uh, there in, in 2001, um, not long after the attacks of uh, September 11th. Uh, the purpose um, that we were told uh, was that we were going there uh, to, to root out Al-Qaeda, uh, to, to, to get Osama bin Laden, uh, and to prevent uh, future terrorist attacks, to prevent it from being used as a safe haven uh, for terrorists. But I think it's important for us to ask fundamental questions, uh, the first of which is, what do we see victory uh, as looking like in Afghanistan? Because obviously, uh, Osama bin Laden has been dead for almost a decade now. Uh, and yet, the United States military uh, is still there. Um, I, to me, I, I, I can't get a clear answer of what the goals are uh, for us in Afghanistan. And if you don't have uh, a goal, if you don't have uh, a victory condition in mind, that is a recipe uh, for a forever war and continued occupation. Um, so I think uh, we've been in the country for so long that it's, it's kind of become uh, a new normal for us. Uh, so it's important for us to step back and really ask ourselves, what are we doing there? What do we hope to achieve? Uh, and when do we hope to be out? Um, to me, those are questions that are not being answered in the mainstream press or even asked. Amar? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, and uh, as far as this uh, topic of Afghanistan, uh, I'd also like to mention uh, the report published by the Washington Post called the Afghanistan Papers. Um, it's some 2,000 uh, pages uh, compiled by some special uh, inspector general who interviewed the Pentagon generals and uh, the, the military establishment uh, in charge of executing our Afghanistan strategy. 
uh, and the Congressional Research Service, they, they summarized uh, those 2000 pages into some 17 pages, very easy to read. But anyways, the Afghanistan papers, they show that, uh, you know, these questions Brian raised about what is our, what does victory in Afghanistan look like? What's the plan? All this stuff. Uh, our generals who were leading our efforts in Afghanistan, they did not know these answers at, uh, either. Uh, they, they've stated this internally, that, that they don't know what victory looks like. Um, one of the big issues of uh, the Afghanistan papers was uh, the, the, the generals and the military establishment, they're admitting uh, right up front uh, that one of the biggest issues with the Afghanistan war is waste. We pour so much money into this war and it largely ends up becoming waste. Uh, e even, even the money that's supposed to be dedicated for humanitarian purposes in, in the country of Afghanistan, they had this, uh, the phrase they used like uh, uh, aid absorption capacity or something like that. And the aid absorption capacity was some, some amount, dollar amount. And what we're pouring in was far greater. So, so the point was, that all this money ended up getting wasted. It ended up going to these tribal warlords who are using it probably not for the best purposes. Um, so I, I would encourage people to take a look at the Afghanistan papers to, to show that uh, the, the people within our government and our military in charge of executing our war strategy, there is no clear goal of victory. And there is a lot of issues in, in terms of loss of life, of course, and, and loss of our, our tax dollars. Uh, I just wanna say one thing real quick, uh, back, backing up from the issue of Afghanistan and talking about uh, US militarism more broadly. Uh, I, I mentioned in a previous question uh, that, that, that I question how, how many of us know the extent of US militarism and, and, and how much we pay in through our tax dollars. I just wanna be clear that, um, I, I, I don't blame the American people for this at all. The American people are largely against uh, endless wars as we've seen through polls and people are struggling with their lives trying to make ends meet, trying to pay for healthcare. Uh, so the, the reason I bring this up is because I, I just want to tie in US militarism with, with a wealth and income inequality in, 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 in our country and uh, the, the wealth and income inequality has made people's lives very hard. We, we all know this through our friends and family and, and our own lives. And uh, it keeps us distracted. And in the meantime, uh, we're able to do a war in Afghanistan for decades, the longest war in US history. We're able to do multiple uh, active uh, combat situations. I think Brian said seven countries and um, that all of that's going on while we're working 40 to 60 hours a week, just trying, trying to pay our bills. And, and on top of that, while we're working so hard and paying our taxes like good citizens, more than half of that tax money is going to a uh, company, going to the Pentagon, which is then subcontracting a lot of it to companies like Raytheon and Boeing and Lockheed Martin, uh, which is perpetuating all of this. So we're essentially subsidizing wars and the military industrial complex while we're struggling to make our own ends meet, people have lost their job during this pandemic. Our health insurance is tied with our jobs. So not only are people losing their jobs, they're losing their health insurance. So it just goes back to this whole point about uh, budgets are, they reflect our values. And, and we can see that 
our values, uh, at least as represented by our government, as represented by our federal budget, they're completely off and, and we need to reinvest in our people and not invest in war and destruction. So one of the things, or I should say, um, we have about five minutes left. And when, my next question was going to be, um, talk about impact on the US a bit. What about the impact on Afghanistan? What has the, the human cost been for the people of Afghanistan over these 19 years? Well, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of lives uh, lost in Afghanistan. It's it's hard to be even certain um, how how many lives uh, have been lost in that country. It, it's it's been going on for so long, and and the details are are so uh, unclear. Um, but just just the fact of being occupied by another country, uh, I'd like your your listeners to just sort of imagine. Um, what it would be like um, if a foreign country uh, were occupying the United States or, or the state of Massachusetts, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts rather, uh, and just the mindset uh, that, that, that that could give you. Um, just knowing um, that there are drones uh, and aircraft uh, flying overhead uh, and that a bomb could go off, uh, a missile could land at any minute um, just living in that fear uh, and what that does uh, to a person um, and how they think about the world and, and just consider how they think about us. Um, and if you ask yourselves those questions, uh, then it becomes a bit clearer um, why in polls now over and over and over again in the vast majority of countries all over the world, um, the nation that is seen as being the greatest threat to world peace is the United States. You know, that's very different uh, than how we see ourselves. Um, uh, we're taught in this country uh, that the United States is a force for good uh, in the world. Uh, that's what our, our media and our education system uh, tells us, but that's very different uh, from how the United States has been viewed. And that is only getting worse uh, the longer that we stay deployed all over the world. Amar? Yeah, uh, thanks, Brian. And I'll, I'll uh, add to that. You know, I, I remember uh, growing up here in Eastern Massachusetts and on a nice sunny day going outside to play basketball with my friends. Now, now juxtapose that with uh, children in Afghanistan who uh, their, their country has been at war ever since they've been born. And there's this famous quote, I, I think from an Afghani boy, he, he said something and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, uh, you know, he, he doesn't like it when the days are sunny because then he knows that uh, the, the drones will be out on those days. He, he prefers cloudy days. So, you know, it's just, uh, you know, it's heartbreaking thinking, thinking about how, how, how fun my own childhood was and getting to play with my friends on, on nice sunny days. And, and their experience is completely different in, in a place like Afghanistan because of the war we've brought there and kept there for, for two decades now. And I'll just add that even by our own standards, um, the, the intervention in Afghanistan is not working. Um, 
the Taliban um, is now in control of more territory in Afghanistan um, than at any time uh, uh, since our intervention in 2001. So even by our own standards, uh, this mission is not uh, succeeding. Uh, and uh, veterans of, of, of the US military know it uh, too. Now an overwhelming percentage of US veterans uh, who have served uh, in Afghanistan, uh, I would say some two thirds, I believe the figure is, uh, think that the mission in Afghanistan is not working, uh, that we have lost uh, and they don't know why we're still there. Um, and to me, if you can't answer that very basic question, uh, then it's time for a change. Uh, it's time to get out of Afghanistan. So that's a great kind of wrap-up statement, Brian. I mean, it's depressing, but well said. <laughs> so I see that we're just about out of time. Um, we, I feel like we've just kind of started talking about all these issues, which is fine. If people want to um, plug into um, some of the actions or remote actions, um, You've been listening to Amar and Brian from Mass Peace Action. If you search on Mass Peace Action, how to come up with their fine newsletter, which has a lot of information and actions. So, it's a, thank you so much for joining Undercurrents today. Um, it was Amar and Brian from Mass Peace Action, and um, you're tuned to WMUA 91.1 in Amherst. Good to talk to you.